Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Limitless Podcast, where we bring you the global leaders in sales and marketing to share their experiences, insights, tactics, best practices, and most importantly, actionable inputs that you can readily implement. Today, we'll be discussing an important topic uh, with a person who has immense experience in this field. Uh, we'll be talking about startups and product market fit. Uh, to share his wisdom and insights, we have an amazing guest. Uh, before I introduce him, I'd like to tell a bit about our guest today. Uh, he's a globally renowned sales and marketing thought leader with over 20 years of experience in bringing new products to the market. He has helped over a dozen startups find product market fit and predictable revenue. Uh, not only that, uh, he has also helped a lot of global multinational companies identify new applications for their existing technology portfolio. Uh, he wears multiple hats. He's an entrepreneur, venture capitalist, author, keynote speaker, advisor to Y Combinator, NASDAQ, or the founder startups and more. Uh, he's the founder of Growthex, a seed stage venture capital firm with a lot of brilliant companies in its portfolio. Uh, if you're a founder or a sales professional or into startups, uh, you, he is a must follow, one of the top follow, uh, influences to follow in the scene. Uh, we have Sean Shepard, the founder of Growthex and Growthex X Academy with us. Hi, Sean. Uh, welcome to Limitless. It's great to have you on the Thank show. Thank you. Glad to, glad to be here. Hi, yeah. Uh, so let's dive into the topic then. Uh, tell us about uh, yourself, your story, growth X. What is it? Ethos? Sure. Um, uh, I guess it just starts. I've been a serial entrepreneur and five-time founder, but always the sales and marketing founder, never the product and technology founder. And after having a, a three, three exits, I moved to the investment side and started to realize why my companies that I was investing in weren't growing. And, and it had more to do with sales and marketing than it had to do with product and technology. So um, my partners and I created a fund and uh, developed a methodology that was designed to reduce the failure rates, improve the scale rates uh, through helping our companies find product market fit which is defined very simply as when you can't keep up with the market anymore. Uh, when there's a lot of demand for what you have uh, and your ability to fulfill it is, uh, is the biggest challenge. Um, and a lot of us just assume that we have that before we even do. Um, and we behave that, uh, you know, we behave in such a fashion that, that we assume that we have it and, and it's a very dangerous way to behave. So, um, we like to say we were serial entrepreneurs turned investors turned frustrated investors because our companies weren't growing because they couldn't build the market, not because they couldn't build the product. And you couple that with the shift in the marketplace in the last decade from uh, developed technology largely to now applied technology largely, which means it's never been easier or cheaper to get products to market than it is today. It's also never been more difficult or expensive to get traction for those products in the market. Um, the first time I raised money 20 years ago, I raised eight and a half million dollars on a, a pre MVP idea with my team. Um, I could build that same product today for probably $200,000 us wow. uh, because all of the infrastructure exists. Also today, because of that, um, it's very hard to get someone to invest in an idea uh, unless you've been successful in the past. Um, so what you really need is you need to show real traction in the market if you want to raise capital or if you want to, um, you know, borrow against your future in order to build something scalable. Um, and as a result, venture capitalists, for example, we are now taking the same pile of money and we're giving less of it to more companies sooner and watching how, uh, how they behave and whether or not they can get real traction for it and then selecting the ones that can demonstrate product market fit and making big investments in those. And that's where the difference, that's where the picking of winners and losers happens. And in Silicon Valley, where I live, um, the, the data su suggests that 70% of seed stage funded companies fail. Um, and eight of the top 10 reasons why they fail have to do with markets and behaviors, not products and technology. Yet everyone is still very much focused on product and technology, 
many, many founders, probably I would say the majority of founders are product focused or have a technical background. Um, it doesn't mean they have any experience or focus on marketing and sales or market development versus product development. And my argument to the world today is that we need to, um, we need to provide equal emphasis and equal weight to market development uh, as we do product development. And if we educated and supported and trained and, um, and prioritized market development, the way that we do technical background and product and, um, and, and the other parts of the business, um, I think a lot more companies would last longer. Um, I think our failure rates would go down. And in our portfolio, we've proven that. Um, you know, our, our, our failure rate is dramatically lower than that of the industry, uh, the, the venture capital industry. Our return rates are much higher. Um, and as a result, people have now started to stand up and take notice and they want to license or partner with us on our programming and, and, uh, and use it in their own venture funds in their own accelerators and incubators. Um, students want it through our GrowthX Academy uh, which is another business we launched to train people in this type of thing because people don't teach. We're not taught sales in school. We're not taught modern growth marketing and growth hacking. We're not taught UX design thinking. Um, data science is just becoming a thing. Uh, and we're certainly not taught the holistic approach of what it is to take something someplace new. And that's what our entire methodology is designed to do. It's, it can work with any business of any type or size with any product in any market. And people always ask me that, well, is this for business to business and not business to consumer? Or is it for software and not hardware? Or is it for, you know, a consumer package good versus something else? It's for everything. And the reason is, is it's a learning framework and it's designed to try and flatten the learning curve and do it in the most efficient way possible because we all have very limited money and time and resources to figure out where our product fits in the market, if it does at all, um, and, what, and what we can do about that. Um, so we launched a venture fund with a different venture model structure that um, allowed us to be helpful to our companies while earning additional equity over what we purchased it worked well for our LPs, investors, our, our founders. The LPs and the investors love it because they get insights into what's really going on in the company. They get a, a proven team of people that help them de-risk their investment. Um, <clears throat> they earn additional equity for making the investment in that. Um, the entrepreneurs love it because they don't have to um, uh, spend cash. They get expertise and help that they need. Um, at a critical time. And then once we, once we started doing that successfully, we realized obviously we couldn't help companies forever. We had to eventually step back and let them fly out of the nest, leave the nest on their own, if you will. So we um, looked around at ways we could find talent that could help continue these companies um, on, their, on the correct path. And we quickly realized something we'd already known anyway, which is that once again, there's a dearth of talent in the market that knows how to grow a startup. Um, and there's very few that know the specialty of startup selling and startup marketing, um, which is very different than when you're doing selling and marketing in an existing business versus a new business. Um, I like to say it's like you're a stranger in a strange place with a strange offering, going to other strangers and asking them to do strange things with you. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that is a different if you think about it that requires a different approach entirely uh to get people's attention to compel them to give you what you're looking for which really at this point isn't money it's time and truth you're looking for people to give you their time and their expertise and their feedback and you're looking for it to be as honest as it possibly can be so that you can learn faster so it's about asking the right questions at the appropriate time in the appropriate way and in the appropriate order. Uh, and then actively listening and learning and reacting and responding to that and doing it for mutual benefit of all parties involved. Um, 
because you want to find early customers that share your vision, um, appreciate your reality, and are willing to give you that time and truth and take the risk associated with that, with, uh, with that along the journey from reality to vision because they agree with you and they see a benefit um, that's great enough and strategic enough for them to want uh, to do that with you. And that's a very different psychology and mindset than your traditional customer. So I always tell sellers and marketers and startups, you're not selling and marketing products to people or, or markets. You're recruiting early partners. And when you're recruiting, think about how you go about recruiting. It's a very different approach. You have to come up with a very clear value proposition that would compel people to come to you. They would agree with your positioning and your narrative that this is what we do and why we do it. And, and these are the kinds of people we do it for. And here are some examples of the results of successful results of, of doing that for other people. And then that should nurture the right people towards you and the wrong people away from you because opportunity costs is, is one of the huge failure uh, reasons for failure in early stage companies. You're spending your time with the wrong people and it's very easy to do because we all get seduced by people who express interest in us and what we're doing. And we personalize that, right? If somebody, um, rejects our idea, we think they're rejecting us. Um, if someone accepts our idea, they think we think they're accepting us. Um, and that creates the wrong kind of behaviors. So we have to be very objective. We have to have a growth mindset that says that I don't know what I don't know yet about the customer, the problem, the value, the use case, um, and what the and how to measure. Because those are really the things trying to get down to, right? You're trying to figure out who's my customer right now. Um, what problem do they have that I think I can solve for, right? How will they actually utilize my product or service to solve that problem? How will they get a measurable gain from it? And how would I measure that? And then ultimately, what's the monetizable value of that? Those are the five things. And when you're taking anything to market, those are the questions you're trying to get answered. There's a lot to unpack. I have a lot many questions. <laughs> uh, sure. So you said uh, one of the biggest reasons that is for over 70% of the companies fail is not because of the product. It is because yeah. of the market and behavior. Correct. And, uh, so you uh, train companies through your growth academy. Am I right? Well, um, so we invest in companies and then we have a market development team that works alongside them to help them grow. And that's mm -hmm. for the companies that we make investments in. And it's a bespoke accelerator program. It's not like traditional accelerators that take big batches of people mm -hmm. and companies. And then they focus on helping them develop products and raise money, which is the primary reason most entrepreneurs and founders join accelerators is they're looking for access to a network of people they don't otherwise have access to for the express purpose for the primary purpose of raising capital and a secondary purpose of, of getting support um, and mentorship. But really it's about trying to raise money because they think they need to raise venture. And I would first say that over 50% of the companies that enter those accelerators have no business raising venture. Um, if you understand the business model of venture capital, it's all about big fast. If you can't be a hundred million dollar company in five years, the overwhelming majority of venture capitalists are not going to be interested. Um, if you can, if you can't hit a billion, the the rest of them won't be interested. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it's um, <clears throat> a lot of people enter that thinking that that's going to be their outcome and what they're going to get. And I have no problem with any of the accelerators or incubators in the world. I think they all should exist. They all serve a genuine purpose. And I think they're very important. And anybody who supports entrepreneurship, I think that's wonderful. There's 100 million businesses started every year across the globe by entrepreneurs. You don't have to be a tech venture-backed uh, founder to be an entrepreneur. If you can provide something of value to the world, you, you get fair exchange for that. You use that to support yourself and your family and, and give back to your community. You've won, as far as I'm concerned. You are not a successful entrepreneur, regardless of the amount of money associated with that. Mm -hmm. 
So our accelerator was designed not to develop products and raise money, but to develop markets and make money because that's where all the failure is. Right. And so we would work with our companies anywhere from three months to two years, depending on how long it took to take them through our milestones in the market acceleration program. Um, because the market decides how long it takes, right? You don't. Um, it's foolish to think that you get to choose where your product fits in a market. Yeah. Um, it's not your choice. Uh, it's the market's choice. Um, so once, we, once they'd come out of that, then, as I said earlier, we'd find out that they needed talented people in sales and marketing and design thinking and, and, and strategy to actually help them continue to execute on their growth plan. Um, and because people weren't teaching it, we launched GrowthX Academy as a boot camp model. We looked around and we saw that all these coding boot camps existed. They're teaching everybody to code, but nobody's teaching people how to sell. And nobody's teaching people how to market. Nobody's teaching people how to design. And if you can't do those things, it doesn't matter what you're coding. No one will ever find out about it. Um, and it won't, it won't exist. So the academy was designed to do that. So it takes adult learners that are already accomplished that want to work in high-tech growth in those areas of sales and marketing and design uh, and work as, as uh, key strategic either co-founders to early hires in that startup, in that startup world. Um, and then we built a global network of mentors, uh, practice leaders, subject matter experts, people who would hire them, people who would um, uh, provide content that was relevant in real time to help people get the skills they needed. Not just the skills though, the appropriate behaviors, which is so much, it's so important because it's one thing to be able to do something that'll get you in the door and get the job. But if you wanna actually grow and advance, you need to know how to behave while doing those things. Um, and so that's, that's how the academy came to be. And then the curriculum is very immersive. Uh, they work on real projects with real companies. They can either be in our portfolio or just generally in the community. We began this all in a big co-working space in downtown San Francisco with hundreds of startups in it. So it built <clears throat> this incredible ecosystem of people helping each other. So you had the investors, you had the founders, you had the people who they wanted uh, that wanted to work with them uh, and the people that wanted uh, to, uh, to buy from them and support them all working together. That's amazing. Uh, That's to try and build a uh, Sean, you talked about market development. Uh, so this product market fit, you told why is it important? Because it's the market which is going to determine what, how good is your product and what is its worth. And you specifically talked about market development. So if you could explain, like, uh, how does it look in a company? Like, who is responsible for it? Is it the founder or the marketing team or sales team? Like, how does it play out? Yeah, I think uh, the best way to think about it is, is you have two sides to a business. You have a product side and you have a market side. Mm -hmm. Both need equal attention and both have a unique set of skills associated with them. And then there needs to be a way for both to work together in a, in a learning loop that accelerates the feedback uh, so that you can build something that people want, right? And if you're a solo founder, you have to find some, you have to decide which one's your strength uh, and where you need to hire somebody or bring somebody in as either a partner, co-founder, or, or your first hire uh, to do the other one. Most founders, I, we strongly suggest, they sh they're basically doing both. They're performing product and market development in the very beginning, but at some point that doesn't scale anymore and they have to break those, things, those two functions up. Yep. Um, if you are a founding team, say multiple founders, you better be a founding team that has somebody who can do market development. I have always been that person, right? My job in my companies, I like to make the joke. Yes, I've, I've, I'm a tech founder and a tech VC, but I can't even spell HTML. <laughs> I can't code. Um, but what I know how to do is use technology to help solve people's problems. And I know how to, I know how to process that. And I know how to drive that, um, that, uh, that learning necessary to make that happen. And I know how to work with product people and the market to make it work. Um, and so I always, the key to my success was not my ability to do market development, but it was my ability to partner with great product people and work together towards product market fit. 
So, that, so there's equal weight there. Now, market development is all encompassing. It is sales, it is marketing, it is product marketing and some product management. It is operations, it is leadership, it is learning, it is coaching. It is everything you need to go find early customers and work with them to validate where your product fits in a market. And then working with your product folks um, as the liaison, or what I like to call the chief learning officer, to, um, to build something that people want instead of just what you think they want or what you think is cool or what your vision is. Because 90% of what we take to market is wrong. Let's be honest about it. The goal is to be 89% wrong tomorrow based on what we learned today. And that's the pursuit, the constant, that relentless, reckless, I wouldn't say reckless, I would say hopefully structured pursuit of, of the truth. And our methodology is designed to do three things. And it's the same three things everybody should constantly try and do, which is number one, find the truth about where their product fits in the market and what to do about it. Number two is to create a functional learning organization out of the team of people responsible uh, for pursuing that truth, knowing they have limited time and money and resources to do it. And then the third is, can you find profitability? Is there a business model attached to what you're doing? And you don't even have to be a for-profit business. Not for-profit businesses can benefit from this just as much. In fact, I would say, in my experience, not-for-profit businesses are more focused on money than for-profit businesses. They're always, always obsessed with ways to fund whatever their mission and their purpose is. Well, wouldn't it be great if you had a self-funding mechanism so that you could help more people? And that's the idea. So those are the three things, truth, learning, and profitability. And if you follow the framework and you ask the right questions and you get the right early customers and you spend your resources focused on that, um, you will find your truth. It doesn't mean you're going, it's, it's going to turn out the way you thought. 50% um, of funded startups pivot at least once, successful once. 30% um, pivot at least twice. So it, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you need to be open and buoyant to the idea that there may be another way to help people than you originally thought. And that way is valuable. Uh, and that's, that's noble and, and, and right and, and perfectly okay. So um, let me give an example. Say uh, a company that has closed its seed, spare, seed fund, uh, a rating or series A funding. Now there are about say 40 to 50 employees max. Uh, now I want to make sure I have the product market fit. Uh, how do I know that? What are the key indicators that I have a good product market fit? One, yeah, obviously customer telling me that, but uh, yeah. uh, the second, how do I know I have a very good product market fit? Second, how long can I take? Sure. Um, well, the first one is, is, is economically, the general rule is, is can you have two consecutive business quarters? fiscal quarters uh, where your, your uh, market development team is paying for itself wow, in, the form nice. of, in the form of revenue contribution that's typically two to three times their cost mm -hmm. of sales. That's the general economic rule. So it, in our case, I'd say, all right, your first, your first sales hire, what we call the Renaissance rep or the chief market developer, um, <clears throat> is their first objective as part of finding product market fit is to establish a market milestone. Based on the resources that we have and what we know about how those resources are going to get allocated towards identifying and acquiring our first early customers, based on the criteria that we set, we think we can get, say, three proofs of concept converted into paid customers in the next six months. I'm making this up, but that's an example, right? Um, and so their job is to go do that, right? And they're rewarded and compensated based on that initial organizational objective, not a traditional sales quota. Um, once they can accomplish that, uh, then it's, okay, let's go get the second hire. And let's see now, based on what we've learned and know, can that second person ramp up within a quarter and then by the second quarter, hopefully, 
start to pay for themselves? And then can they do that consistently for two quarters beyond? And then if they can, then we do it again. And that's how we look at it. And then at some point through that, you're going to start to see where that demand curve starts to move in your direction. And now you hopefully, if you follow the methodology, you should have all the data and evidence necessary to justify raising a larger round of capital um, if you're earlier stage. If you're later stage, um, you still need to be lean with that, right? Um, and you have to hopefully by this point you've figured out what your ideal customer profile looks like, what channels to reach out to them, what your CAC LTV ratios look like um, across each one of those channels, what value propositions, selling propositions and messaging to the market works across different means and channels and formats, whether it's a, a cold email or it's a Google ad word, or it's a, it's a, it's a script for outbound cold calling um, whatever it might be, right? You've got all of your assets created in terms of your collateral necessary to socialize and sell and, and start filling the top of your funnel. You've got all your instrumentation in place to do all of your outbound, track your inbound and outbound activity and start com uh, optimizing conversion rates at every stage in a funnel that you've established. You've got an opportunity and nurture framework. You've got pipeline management. Um, you're starting to build not just a corporate brand, but a talent brand. So you're attracting the right people into your organization. You should have that functional product market feedback loop continuing to operate between that first initial rep, we call it, and the product team. And then you're starting to build out a, a, a team for transition into growth. So you're getting people who are uh, players and coaches um, and you're monitoring um, the unit economics on a quarter by quarter basis to see that that's happening. Um, and once there's indications that if I just add more capital to this, it will scale in parallel, um, then, uh, you know, that's how you know. Uh, the last thing uh, you said actually made a perfect sense. Uh, when you add more capital, if I know that I can fuel the growth and continue the growth, uh, yeah, that is something. Makes yeah, sense. and that's what you need. You need evidence of that. And the, and the entire market acceleration program is designed to give you that evidence. Mm -hmm. that's, that's number three, right? Truth, learning, and profitability. Show me through the unit economics that if I just add more fuel, um, this CAC LTV ratio will continue to um, maintain at its current levels or something very close to it. Uh, now I have one. Uh, so the methodology you uh, prescribe that is finding the truth. I have one specific question. Uh, I have personally seen uh, in the market when the product is a must-have product, uh, the problem is quite different. Often it is about a red ocean. There are a lot of competitors. It's about how you position yourself. Okay, that's a different approach. But most of the time I see problems come uh, when the product is good to have, or especially when you're creating a new category. Uh, so now my problem is as a founder, I need to believe in my idea. Um, at the same time, I need to know where to draw the line and say, okay, maybe this is not what the customers are looking for. Where do you draw the line and how do you pivot? Or when do you pivot, especially in the product, which is new in the category? You've got to start, you've got to start with a use case. Mm -hmm. You have to start with a use case. How is someone going to, apply my product or service or technology to their, to their world, right? And gain mutual agreement with a small cohort of customers in that segment. And then the risk becomes, is the market big enough and is the problems deep enough and valuable enough to where I can make money at it? Not just with these early, with this early cohort, but with many more like them. And so you have, you know, you can't, you can't build a product in search of a solution, right? You've got to do the other way around. So here, I made this. These are the things it can do. How would it work and how could it apply or work in your business? And that requires getting outside the building and trying to understand markets and business models and where you can contribute to those. And I don't just mean at the functional level. If the problem is great enough, people will spend time with you to help you solve that problem together. Um, and, and if your product is um, 
as they mostly are, incomplete, uh, when you take them out, um, you'll, get, you'll hopefully be able to build a, a more whole and complete solution. But it's also really important to know that um, people still do business with people first. This is a human to human experience. If somebody doesn't go well with the product, no one's going to choke the product. They're going to choke you. And they need to know that they can, right? And so you have to have credibility. Uh, you, they need to be able to trust you. Um, you and, and that happens through not just your words, but your actions and your behaviors. How committed are you to this, to this working? Um, what are you going to do? Uh, how do you propose to solve my problem? Always being mindful that, that our customers don't want more work. They want less. How do we create an environment where they, where they, have, they feel like they have less work, not more? Um, and they don't want conflict. So how do we reduce conflict and work uh, to make their lives better and easier along the way? And that's just a series of experiments, right? You have a product. Now you've got to map out all the different potential applications that exist, that may exist as a hypothesis. And then you define them as this is a use case and this is the problem it solves and this is how it would solve it. And this is how we would measure it. And then here's what we think the ultimate results would be. And then now you have a story, what I call a value hypothesis that you can take to people with that persona and that profile and say, do you agree with this or not? Let's have a conversation. Okay. Let's learn together. And you rinse and repeat that for every different application with every different use case uh, for every different problem set. Um, until you find the one that gives you the fastest path to traction. And then you focus on the one that gives you the fastest path to traction. It, won't, it may not serve your vision and it may not be what you want long-term and it may not be the ultimate best use case for what you're doing, but it keeps you alive. It keeps you on the field. It builds momentum and it shows the rest of the world that you're worthy. And, that, and, that, and that's important. So the second thing you talk about is creating a functional learning organization. Uh, could you please expand on that? What does a company look like, which is? Yeah, well, first it begins with a mindset, right? Um, I, one of the things that kills startups is confirmation bias. Um, what we call founder bias, right? You say you're out there looking for information, but what you're, what you're really looking for is confirmation or affirmation. Um, and so you're not asking the right questions to the right people in the right way. You're not spending your time in the right areas. You're, you're operating under these assumptions that if I build it, they will come. Um, and you're not open to uh, new ideas and learning um, because you're so staunch in your vision and your commitment to your vision and, and that attitude you hear from people of, oh, people don't know what they want until you give it to them or, or pe these people just don't get it. Well, is it that they don't get it or you're not explaining it correctly or there's no need for it in the market right now um, or the problem isn't as big as the, it, to them as you think it is? Um, I mean, there's a whole host of different ways you need to dig into that and try and understand it. Um, so everybody has to be a learn-it-all instead of a know-it-all. And then you have to create that functional learning by building what we call a product market feedback loop. So how do you implement that? For example, you have a market developer who's responsible for collecting all the feedback from the market, and you have a product development team who's trying to build the vision. <clears throat> and every product team, uh, they have a product roadmap, and they meet on that product roadmap, and they execute against a, a, a project management framework to accomplish tasks and goals associated with that roadmap. Well, market developers need the same thing. And what they need to do is every week they need to meet, and I'm just saying a week, but with whatever frequency makes the most sense when there's new information. Um, and the market developer needs to lay the market development roadmap on top of the product development roadmap and see where there's misalignment. Because a market development roadmap is not created by the market developer, it's created by the market. And that's them collecting the feedback of all the feature and function requests and the problems that they have that they really need solved for now. And are we prioritizing what the customer wants or what we think they want? And you have to have a product team that is open to that. And the market developers need to encourage as much direct interaction as possible between the product team and the customers so that they can hear for themselves exactly what is happening. Um, and if they don't trust the market developer, then it's not going to work anyway. 
sooner or later, most likely it will fail. And if it doesn't fail, it is successful. It won't be fun because there's, there's a complete misalignment about what matters most. Uh, That's functional learning. And that will get you where you want to go faster if that's working in a functional way as opposed to a dysfunctional way. <laughs> perfect sense. Uh, if we can collect the feedback from the market and that learnings go into the product development on a consistent basis, then we have a better chance of building out the product the market actually wants. Uh, and now, it needs uh, mutual respect between both sides. Uh, now, uh, so most companies, uh, at least I'm not aware of that. Like there are a lot many companies that have a specific uh, role for a market developer uh, because people, it's, a, it's usually the product marketing manager or someone else who plays the roles. And often I see uh, the person who faces the communication or at least interacts with the market is usually the salesperson. Uh, whereas the product team uh, and the product marketing That's team right. usually takes a backseat and the most that happens is you listen to a, a recorded call via gong or something. Uh, yeah. So do you think a role of a market developer is necessary? And if I'm an early stage company, when is the time I should recruit one? And the third one is, uh, what are the responsibilities for him? What, sh what should his role look like? Yeah, so um, this person is always the one who's responsible for, for taking something someplace new for the first time. And that's, that's a, that's a, that is a valuable role in any organization at any stage of the company, because it's not about the stage of the company, it's about the stage of a product in a given market. And it doesn't matter if it's an existing product to a new market or a new product to an existing market or a new product to a new market. The dynamic in the, is the same. And we call it the, sometimes we like to call it the role of the Renaissance rep. Uh, the characteristics and attributes of this person is, is again, they have a love for the product and the market that they're, they're serving. They love to learn. They embrace ambiguity. They communicate very well cross-functionally across all these different teams. Um, they have enough technology and product acumen to serve partially like as a product manager as well as a market developer. Um, and they get very frustrated when things get, um, uh, once things, once patterns start to exist and things are very repetitive. They love the variety um, and they love the challenge of architecting you know, building as opposed to growing or managing, right? And if you think about the development of a company, there's creation, there's standardization, and there's optimization. These are the creators who get you to standardization. And then they got to get out and go back to creating again. It's like Peter Thiel saying zero to one. These are zero to one mindsets and zero to one people. And there's always a role for them because there's always a new market. There's always a new channel. There's always a new hypothesis that's been constructed that needs to be tested. And this goes for, they can have a marketing background, they can have a sales background, they can have a product background, uh, they can have an operations background, they can have all of those things. It's less about their, their skills and it's more about their mindset and their characteristics. Um, so every company should have that um, in one way or another. If they're a large corporation, I call it the commercialization leader. Their job is to commercialize new products and technologies and use the same framework. Our corporate innovation practices is, is gotten very, has become very successful by applying the same framework that we apply with our startups to corporations that are launching new products, especially technology products or digital products when that's not their background or IOT products, things like that. Because the team inside is wonderful, but that's not their function or role. Most of the innovators and inventors and creators and entrepreneurs in, the, in those companies uh, were there in the beginning and they're either dead or retired now. Um, and, and they've been replaced with great operators, great optimizers, right? Um, and then there's a big gap between their lab of people who are creating things, but not actually R&D labs, who are tinkering with stuff, but not actually ever talking to customers about it first. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a corporation and seen just how much money they're spending and wasting on products that, that don't have a fit in the market where there's no problem um, today. And what they should be doing is prioritizing the things that can help them today. Um, and so the same thing exists in a startup environment. So the market developer is that all-encompassing person that's responsible for pursuing product market fit, 
and managing the market side of the business so that you can build something uh, that that works um, in that way. And then I, the other comment I would make is, yes, it's a, it's a sad, it's, it's, it's a tragic structural problem. And I think it's systemic that the salespeople don't have as much of a, don't, they do not have the voice that they deserve and, and, and should have in these corp, in these companies because they are the front line. They're the ones talking to the customers every single day, right? It's no different than right now. We're in this age of COVID and I don't care what the media says. I don't care what the people in, in, in uh, the, uh, in government say, I care what the frontline workers tell me. They're the ones that are experiencing it every single day. And more importantly, I care what the patients have to say because those are the ones that are truly experiencing it. It's no different in that your sales professionals are your frontline workers. The patients are their customers. They are interacting with them every single day to try and solve problems. And they're not given the voice that they should have in these organizations. There's too much space between the customer, the sales professional, and the executive team that's making strategic decisions about the direction of a business. Uh, uh, it's true. Like I've seen, I've personally seen it happen quite a few times, and I've it's in a lot of frustration. And uh, you get on with the sales team, and I've told this many times: there's a pricing issue, product issue, this feature has been raised. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Uh, so, Sean, can you share an example of uh, for one of the companies you helped pivot, or like how did it go about, like? Uh, or one of the portfolio companies or anything that came through the academy or any other startup you helped with. Uh, if you can share an example, uh, that will help us relate more. Uh, how it started out, what were they doing wrong, uh, what you did and how it got corrected and pivot or Well, I can tell you about one of my own that I started, which, uh, which started as an alumni community management product mm -hmm. called AlumWire. Mm -hmm. And we found out very quickly that what people really wanted was a, a CRM for managing their talent. Uh, and so we pivoted um, about two years in from um, from community management for universities, specifically around alumni groups, to talent communities for large corporations who had tens of thousands of, of, of people applying for jobs, but they had no way to keep them engaged or interested um, while there wasn't a job opportunity or someone to be able to reach out to them. We spent the next three years building the world's largest, you know, enterprise talent CRM based on community and, and ended up having a good exit um, after building it for five fortune 50 companies in a way that everyone else would follow. Um, and that's another lesson that I would, uh, an insight I would share with any entrepreneur is when you're at this stage, pre-product market fit, spend as much time as you can with the least amount of companies possible to learn where your product fits in the market. Least amount Don't, of companies. Least, yes, because you can go deeper. Mm -hmm. and then you can really gain insights. It's not about breadth. It's about depth. Once you've identified that cohort and you say like I did, okay, I needed five companies to, to really build out what I think the world needed. So that's all I cared about with those five companies and I focused on those five companies and building for them um, as opposed to trying to do it for 50 um, when you don't have the resources. And that's the idea. We just don't have a lot of resources at this point. It's usually one, two or three people doing all this work. How many people can you really manage and deal with in that period of time? How big of a funnel can you fill and, and actually execute against? How many conversations can you have? How many opportunities can you manage? How many customers can you onboard and retain and grow and learn from successfully? That's a very, very re real problem that, that people don't consider. As I said, one of the major reasons these companies fail is they run out of resources and they run out of resources because they misallocate them or they spend time with the wrong people. You've got six months of, of, of runway and you're talking to a company that has a 12 month sales cycle. It's not going to work. You're a fly and they're, you have a three day half life. They're an elephant. They'll live for 80 years. Okay. You'll come and go. So spend your time where you can with the right people. Uh, so that's quite a big of a jump. Like uh, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it because from an alumni uh, network to a CRM for talent, wow. 
Well, it's what happens when people say, we will give you money if you do this, because this is a really big problem. And I mean, that, and that's literally what happened. It's like, can we use this for this? And I'm like, it's software. The answer was never no. Right? Uh, and then you realize that that's where the I'm sorry, but it's the truth. That's where the money is. Right? And that's another economic reality that people have to understand. That's why business model acumen is, and market acumen are so critical to the market development process. How does a business make money? How do you contribute to that um, in a given market? And if you, can't, if you can't articulate that, then you need to figure out how to articulate it um, or you need to move on to a different market where you can. And oftentimes you'll find that they just don't have the money or the budget uh, or, the cat or, or, or view the problem in the same way, right? Universities uh, and their alumni organizations, for example, they just don't have any money, right? And so it's, it's, it's like, what are you doing? If they don't have money, uh, they, can't, they, can't, they can't buy from you. I just have one quick question uh, on that specific topic. So you go to a customer, he says, if you can build this for me, I'm ready to pay money. Okay, now I have to stop and pass and think, is it just one of requirement uh, am I going to build it or am I going to talk to a few more customers to validate this? If the, so the, the need in the market is big enough. How do you It's very simple. The minute somebody starts, is willing to start paying you, mm-hmm. that's when you know. That's okay. the ultimate metric. And even if they're paying you for the service right now and not the product, and there's nothing wrong with that. I wrote an article last year called Why SaaS Should Be Called Service as a Software, Not Software as a Service. Because my experience has been that the most successful SaaS founders were service providers before they built automation. And they therefore had a service mindset. And they looked at the problem in that way and said, I'm here to help you solve a problem. And guess what? Your customer doesn't give a shit if you solve it with software or you solve it with a human, as long as it gets solved. They don't care about our products. They care about their problems. Uh, So just last one or two questions. So one is, Okay, I'm a salesperson or a market developer. I go into a client call. I demonstrate the product or give a POC. What are the questions should I ask? Um, uh, should we work together? And if so, how? And how would we measure that? Uh, and how would we budget and allocate resources on both sides to that in the form of time, truth, and potentially money? Okay. Uh, what kind of priority is this for you? And when are you ready to do this, if, if at all? I use this very old school approach, spin bant, um, which is what's the situation, what's the problem, what's the impact in their business and the resulting need, and then bant, budget, authority, need, and timing, right? Do they have the budget? Am I talking to the people with the appropriate authority? Do they recognize the need? And is the timing line up with my market milestone requirements? You're looking for a mutually beneficial outcome, right? Um, and then the ultimate question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to continue to pursue this? And if you don't have what I call N plus one, it's not worth pursuing. You need to have them acknowledging that they have a need. And then you have to have established that one of the others already exists, that the timing is right, that you're talking to the person with authority, or that they have budgeted for this. Wow. And if you can get N plus one, then it's probably worth pursuing. And then also be honest with them about your current situation, right? This is what I need in order for us to be successful together. And if that doesn't work for you, that's fine. The second best answer in sales and market development is no. The sooner you know whether or not someone is not right now, and that's it. It's not about Mr. Right. It's about Mr. Right now. That's what you're looking for. Um, and if they can't work with you today, then that's fine. Then you move on to someone else that can. Uh, Sean, I have uh, one last question. Uh, sorry, two last questions, actually. So uh, for startup founders or who are in this current stage, uh, what is your quick advice for them uh, in terms of finding the market, product market? I know it's a huge subject. If you can just give one or two pointers, what would it be? Well, again, focus on the problem and the, pro- and the person mm-hmm. that you're solving it for. And how, and how they're going and how you're going to solve it and what that is, how you're going to measure the results of the solution and what that is worth in the form of money. That's the first thing. 
The second thing is, is go to growthx.com and look up the, the GXMXP series and you can read a series of articles that lay out every step in the framework along with all the tools and documentation that you need in order to track and manage your way through the three milestones of the market acceleration program on your own. Um, and I promise you, if you follow the framework and you apply it, you will get to your truth faster uh, than you otherwise will. Okay. So my last question is uh, what you just ended with. Who is Growth Academy for? Uh, who can benefit from it? And what can well, anybody, any, anyone can benefit from Growth Academy that wants to learn sales, marketing, design, or even our market acceleration program framework. Um, so it can be founders. Uh, it can be um, sellers, marketers. Uh, managers in, in corporations that are looking to reskill and upskill. Uh, it can be for innovation teams that are looking to apply the MXP framework to uh, executing on innovation successfully through commercialization. Um, so uh, it's, it, it's for digital marketers that want to upskill uh, to the latest growth hacking techniques. Mm -hmm. You know, it's for anybody who wants to be in professional selling, um, uh, it, whether it's in a startup or, or, or later stage and wants to understand all the modern approaches and techniques necessary to be successful in the innovation economy. Uh, Sean, uh, that's about it. So uh, listeners who are listening uh, to this podcast, uh, uh, do follow Sean. Sean, where can people follow you? What is the best channel to follow you? Sure. They can connect with me on LinkedIn. They can uh, follow me on Twitter at Sean A. Shepard. Um, of course, they can email me at Sean at growthx.com if uh, they want to continue the conversation. So uh, we will be leaving uh, Sean's uh, LinkedIn address and Twitter handle everything in the description and the podcast and the videos posted below. So uh, feel free to check it out. And uh, if you're a founder or especially a tech founder and having difficulties uh, with market development, specifically GrowthX is something you should check it. Uh, overall, uh, thank you very much for your time, Sean. It was great having you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Stay tuned to our weekly upcoming episodes with more sales and marketing leaders from around the globe. You're on Apple, Spotify, Google and Stitcher as well. Subscribe to get notified when a new episode is out and please do leave us a review if you're on Apple. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.